0: Christmas church let's stand and sing give praise to our Lord The highest this morning, thank you, Lord, for um, being our Savior. And uh, Lord, we just give you all glory and honor and praise. Help us to as we as we study your Word, as we sing praises, uh, that we would be faithful servants, Lord, loving you and serving you and honoring you. And um, Lord, in everything that we do, uh, Lord, we uh, just thank you for this service that we're able to experience today. May we walk away from this chiseled in a little bit more into the image, conformed into the image of Jesus than when we came, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.
1: We have certain stories in the New Testament like the parable of the lost sheep where you leave 99 to go find the one, and so God doesn't forsake that one lost sheep you have these small micro-people groups, so the gospel has not flowed yet because of geography, because of distance, because of cost, because of uh, culture, because of racism. I really feel that these micro-peoples are part of his heart to go after all the sheep, to go after that remnant. In the Amazon, you can go a day without seeing another living soul, which is kind of freaky. But a lot of the reason why you can't see people is because they're hidden. These are hidden peoples, small in population, widely dispersed. They have centuries of a bloody history where they've been exploited. They're animists. They believe in spirits. When you live that way, you tend to be dominated by fear. I see marginalized people. I see forgotten people. I see invisible people that are in desperate need of the gospel. The area is massive, and so to get from where I live, which is already a Jungle city, I have to get into a land plane and fly to another port city, and then the next day we'd get in a boat, and in this slow boat, we travel sometimes three days to get to where we're going. Because we're going into areas where the gospel's not, sometimes it just takes time. But recently we have noticed just God opening some doors. God has been working to send out missionaries, indigenous men and women, where there's no evangelical presence. A well-trained and called indigenous man will be much more effective. They tend to be able to get into hard reach areas without government restrictions. You have fewer language limitations. A lot of my work is training them. So if I wanna teach an indigenous man how to do story, he has to see me do it first. Then after a while of walking alongside, he's very capable at that point. One partner in particular, he wants to go work with a group that has killed outsiders that have walked in. He's like, I don't care. God sent me to go do it. And this is such a a 180 from most indigenous culture that you have to look at him and say, God brought this change to this man. You see families coming to Christ, you do see village headmans getting permission to come in. It really confirms everything that we're out there to do, to go out and make disciples of all nations. When we have those
0: things happen, we sit back and go, okay, this is what it's all about.
1: They can go and they can teach others, and those people can teach others. I want to see this momentum like a wave through the jungle where I can say, look, I didn't see it happen, I wasn't there, but I know the gospel has reached these dark corners. When supporters of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering gives, it allows us to do things like buy an outboard motor that gets us upriver, to get equipment that we need to help us stay out there in the jungle. I've been supported by Lottie Moon. Y'all's generosity is, is a luxury that I never want to take for granted. So I want to say thank you for that. God is faithful in the hard times as He is in the good times, and our mandate doesn't change. These people groups in the jungle, you could be born, live, and die without ever hearing the name of our Savior. So someone has to go, because if we don't go, no one's going to go. If we don't train people to go, no one's going to go. It's worth it.
0: phrase you just saw there is so very true. Every dollar given goes to support and sustain uh International Mission Board missionaries, uh, when you give during the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, let me uh, report to you that you can see our goal up there. Thus far, we have uh, give you have given uh, forty-two thousand eight hundred and sixty-four dollars. So it looks like we are going to make that goal this year. Praise the Lord, and that will help us. Uh, that will God will then allow us to support a missionary uh, from the International Mission Board with that amount. So please. Um, if you haven't given yet, please consider what you would, uh, what God would have you do. Uh, please fill out one of these um, uh, connection cards, and um, uh, we would love to know who's worshiping with us today. So fill that out. On the back, there's information you can ask about. You know, what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? What does it mean to join a church? Or you can uh, have a prayer request. We'd love to hear from those, and we'll re- respond. And so, please, please do that. Um, all right, well, let's continue our, our worship and, and, uh, as we can sort of continue the Christmas season. I know we're a couple of days after the fact, uh, but, um, but we're still using uh, this day as a time of Christmas worship, and you'll, you'll see another candle of our uh, Advent wreath lit today. Let's sing together the first Noel. The first verse really is is all about Christmas. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. What I love about this song, is well, but and but also it goes along with our scripture today. First uh, Timothy three sixteen talks about the mystery of godliness. But, but uh, we should always be in awe. We should there should always be a mystery. There should always be a an awe struckness, if you will. Uh, Uh, as we think about the things of God. Amen? It, It shouldn't just be, oh yeah, I've heard the Christmas story. No, no, no. It is still awesome. It is still mysterious. It is still wondrous. Amen? And so let's be reminded of that in this song.
2: Come behold the wondrous mystery in the de- Come be home. the four chase. Oh,
0: We're going to ask our student pastor, Jeffrey uh, Wolford, and his wife, Michelle, to come and lead us in our Advent candle lighting today.
3: Good morning. Today we light the white candle. It is called the Christ candle. This candle is white in color because Jesus was without sin and when we accept his payment for our sins, we are justified by faith in Christ. This Advent season, we have lit the candle of prophecy, the candle of deity, and the candle of good news.
0: Today we celebrate that Jesus Christ
4: was born to live a perfect life, die for our sins on the cross, be buried in a tomb, and then be resurrected on the third day. He ascended into
0: heaven, And one day soon, he's coming back again. So today we celebrate
4: as we light the Christ candle. Um, Today we'll be reading from 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory.
3: Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you today, and together we confess our sin. We agree with you, and we say amen to the words that all have sinned and fall short of your glory. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But, hallelujah. We thank you that in your love for us, while we were still sinners, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the words of John the Baptist who declared to the world, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you for John 3.16. For you so loved us that you gave your one and only son, that whosoever should believe in Christ, your son, should not die but have everlasting life. And we praise you right now our Father in heaven, for your great love. Jesus Christ, we thank you and we praise you for going to the cross of Calvary, enduring the pain for the joy that was set before you. Given the option and praying the prayer, Lord, if there's any other way to do this, let it be. And and you said, not my will, but thine. And you followed the Father's will to the cross. Father, we thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. We don't have just a Savior in the grave, but we have a true and living Savior who sits at your right hand. And we praise you. And we thank you for the hope we just sang about that one day we will be like you. We will be with you forever in your presence. We praise you and ask these things and thank you all to your glory, to your honor. Amen.
4: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's turn together to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 14. Merry Christmas again, right? I trust that all of you have eaten a lot of food, right? Receive some gifts. Some of them brought them to church today. I saw the kids carrying their gifts, right? But if you play with them during church, I'll call on you, right? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The title of the sermon is The Supremacy of Christ and the Conduct of the Church. The word supremacy is that state or condition of being where you are superior to all others in authority, power, and status. And that belongs only to Jesus. He is the king. He has all authority, all power, and that's his status. And so this text today is going to bring together for us maybe a complete understanding of Christmas and or the incarnation, more importantly, and how that particular understanding of the supremacy of Christ should impact our church or the church of the living God, which is so vitally important. The Bible says in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. Praise God. The supremacy of Christ and the conduct of the church. A Christian author and educator named T.S. Rendell wrote these words. In reading a biography, we never stop after having read about the birth and the early years. We keep on reading until we have read the entire account of the subject's life. However, he said, many people today celebrate the season... ...and the sentimentality of Christmas and totally disregard the rest of the story. It's so important, ladies and gentlemen, that we see the rest of the story. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that in the early church... ...they magnified the rest of the story. Meaning the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. You can't even find uh, any understanding whatsoever that the church was celebrating something called Christmas at all in the book of Acts. It's not there. In fact, the celebration of Christmas apparently did not begin until sometime in the fourth century after Christ. So, it's vitally important that we see the big picture, that we see the rest of the story. We don't stop just at the manger. We take the story all the way and learn everything we can about the subject, and that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's couple that, the supremacy of Christ and who he is, the rest of the story, with the behavior of the church today, the conduct of the church. When you came in this morning to worship the Lord, you were not greeted with statues or ornate altars. You are not even greeted by comedy skits, Christian jugglers, pastoral mud wrestling teams. You are not greeted by MMA fighting. I think most of us would say when we come into our church that our services are kind of simple and plain. We sing, we pray, we preach the word. It seems so plain to me, right? Right? The question is, why do we do church the way we do it? It has everything to do with what the Bible says that the role of the church is in the world. Now, modernity, or the times that we live in, has taken the church and made it into what they want it to be. But I'm telling you, the role of the church according to the Bible has never changed. It's still the way God intends for the church of the living God. To behave. When we understand the nature of the church as God has established it, then we will understand what we are to do as a church and the way we ought to do it. In our text, Paul will instruct Timothy and the entire church of Ephesus. Isn't it interesting that Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus and we're preaching through Ephesians, right? And we'll be back in that soon. But this passage is going to present to us the conduct of the church, the actual most important function of the church, and then also a great and wonderful confession that we must stand on as the church of the living God. Now, if you were to go back in context, you will find that at the end of chapter 2, Paul is dealing with authority in the church. And he says, I permit not a woman to teach over the authority of man. And then he's going to flesh out why that is the case. And then he's going to lay out What the church should look like in reference to elders and deacons. So, when we think about those things, we have to say, well, God had some kind of behavior and order that He intended for the church to have. Now, we can't just brush this off and say, well, that was relevant back in Paul's day, but it's not relevant today. Folks, you need to understand that everything Paul says has apostolic authority to it. And what he's giving you is the mouth of God speaking to the church. This is the word of the living God. And so scholars think it's highly possible that all the circumstances that started to happen in the church of Ephesus necessitated Paul writing this pastoral epistle to Timothy so that he could help the church deal with false teachers, that were teaching heresy, factions that were in the church, divisive behavior, women who were seeking to have the authority in teaching, and there were others who sought to be overseers and deacons who were not qualified. So thus, just if you just take a cursory reading down through Timothy, you're going to find out that that's what was going on. And, and Timothy, as a pastor, had to deal with the propensity of teachers coming in that would not teach the Word of God and dealing with uh, authority issues, and, and elders, and deacons, and how all this functions together, and how the church ought to behave. So Timothy was called by God to silence false teaching, restore order in the congregation. This is not merely Paul's opinion on how the church should function. He didn't go out and find the four best books on the marketing of how to market a church. This is what God Almighty gave Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order for him to help the church function as it should. So he says, this is how you ought to behave or conduct yourself. And he said it with apostolic authority. So two things I want you to see today, bringing together the supremacy of Christ and the conduct of the church. One, there are certain biblical principles that should govern the life of the church. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Should it not? because in this first verse and second verse, 14 and 15, he's reminding us, Paul said, I'd love to come to you, but I can't. I'm being delayed for various reasons. He couldn't just jump on a greyhound and show up. He couldn't just jump on a plane. There were certain things that kept him from traveling. But here he reminds them of behavior and conduct. This is presented as a moral obligation. Certain kind of conduct and behavior. The term is actually a particle of necessity. This means that it's not optional. There's a certain behavior that the church should have. The word conduct means to behave according to certain principles. Therefore, the sermon division is pretty straightforward and simple. There are certain principles that should govern the life of the church. The word behave is a, could is actually, if we use it in military terms, it would be like, what is the protocol of the church? What should be what causes us to function in a certain way? What is it that we're thinking of that helps us do this? So this is something that needs to be addressed in our day. By what standard do we conduct ourselves as a church? Is that not a good thing to ask? In light of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, what, how should, by what standard do we conduct ourselves as a church? Can anything go? Any belief, any action, any thoughts? Is it just worship God any way you so desire to do so? Is that the way it should be? Do we simply operate by what pleases the pastor? What pleases the elders? Do we function by what pleases the deacon body? And the answer is no. We believe that the scripture alone is the sole authority of our faith and our practice. It's called sola. Scriptura. This conduct is not only dictated by the Bible in our own individual lives, but this behavior is also dictated in the church by God, as given to us by the Word. When the Reformers came along, let's say in the 1500s, churches were filled with statues and relics, uh, candles everywhere, honoring saints. This was things that you saw. This was part of their worship. But when the reformers came along, they thought, well, aren't we supposed to listen to what the Bible says about how God is to be worshipped? Not a book of traditions, not the way some group may understand it. Why don't we find out what the Bible says and thus we take what the scripture says and then we worship God? It's, It's pretty simple, folks. The church is the household of God, according to this text. This is the church of the living God. It's not my church. It's not your church. It is the church of the living God. So is it not a profound truth to consider that the Bible calls us the temple of God? What a profound truth that we have in the scripture. This is true corporately and it's also true individually. The God who created the heavens and the earth. It's the same God who lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit if you are a born-again believer. He lives in you. He does not dwell in temples made by hands. He dwells in the human heart. We are the household of God. In the New Testament, there's no special city. There's no special tabernacle. There's no temple where God dwells. Instead, God dwells in His people. We are the household of God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.16. For we are the sanctuary of the living God. Now, as Baptists, we like to say, down that hallway is the sanctuary. We'll be meeting in the sanctuary. Well, I get that. That's just bad terminology. This is not a sanctuary unless the people of God are here. Are y'all listening? This is an auditorium. This is a building. The sanctuary is in the human heart. If you are saved, that's where God dwells. In Ephesians 2.22, he says, You are you also are being built up together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. The church, the corporate body of Christ's followers, is the place where God lives and dwells and manifests His presence. Please consider how significant this makes our weekly gatherings. The church gathers... And the Lord, the living God, is among us. Praise the Lord. What a joy it is to come to church. We are His house, according to this text. Worshiping in His presence. Listening to the divine word of God. Partaking of the elements of the table like we did this past Sunday night. What an awesome privilege it is. It's also true that since God indwells us, since He has received us in through the adoption of grace... We are now the literal household of God. Household, a household, guess what? Has a head. And the head of our household is Christ the King. Uh, Anything with two heads is a freak. And this church has one head, and it is Jesus Christ the righteous. We're going to see that later in the book of Ephesians. But a household is also filled with relatives, with brothers, and with sisters who have like precious faith. So when we come together to worship our head, Christ the Lord, we also celebrate that we are the household of God. When we come together, we're not free agents. We don't come just to figure out what we like and insert our own agenda into the operation of the church. Some of you may have had visitors over Christmas. You got that one family member who comes in and says, well, I don't really like where your couch is. I think you ought to put the couch over in the corner. Furthermore, I don't like where you've got the TV mounted on the wall. We should have the TV put somewhere else. Now, how many of you... Now you may not say anything just to keep the peace during Christmas, but how many of you really like for a visitor to come in your house and start rearranging everything? But, you know, Baptists feel like that we've got a divine prerogative to make the church into what we want it to be. Well, I want to remind you of something. God has no free agents. When you're in His family... You are called by God to worship Him and behave in a certain way. In God's house, we are His children. And His Word stands supreme. What the Word of God says? When we come here to worship, He is in our midst. And we are first here not to honor a man, not to honor tradition, but to honor the King. We're here to honor Jesus Christ. That's the divine prerogative. To determine what the Bible has to say about the essentials of worship. You only need to think about Nadab and Abihu. You remember these guys, the sons of Aaron, who must have gotten bored one day and they thought to themselves, now God's given his instruction, I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but God has given his instruction about how worship should take place in the temple. He's given his commands about the incense, and these two guys had a creative urge. What if we just mix this with this? And the Bible tells us they offered strange fire on the altar. And God, in his hot displeasure, killed them. Moses says to Aaron a little later, Can you imagine Aaron losing two sons that were in the Levitical line? And God consumes both of them. And and Aaron in his down... Losing two sons, Moses says to him, Didn't you hear God say that everyone who approaches me must treat me as holy? Now, folks, I know we live in the age of grace. I get it. But God hasn't changed. Our God is still holy. And we can't do just anything we want to do. We must confine. We must define And follow what the Bible says about what church life ought to be like. What worship should be like. So your pastor refuses to do certain things that are imminently popular today because I hold a different view of God than some pastors in the area. That's not going to change. There are some things that we will not do as a church as long as I'm here as your pastor. Why? Why? because it steps across what the Bible tells us the church of the living God is supposed to be in this world. And I'm going to stand accountable to the king for how I led this particular body. So, listen to what the Bible says now in this designation. The scripture says, If I delay, may, may, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. Let's be honest. God would say to us that there is a behavior... That the church should have, right? There are certain principles. Which is the church of the living God? Now note this, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Do y'all see that the church is called a pillar and a buttress of truth? In essence, you move from the conduct of the church over to the function of the church. Behavior over to function. What is the preeminent place of emphasis in that text? We are the pillar and buttress of? Wow. Is that not the emphasis upon the wording? Truth. Truth is the emphasis of the wording. I can tell you that the truth of our God today has been eroded. Now that's common sense for most of us to think about that. But I would tell you that it's not just in the world. It's also in the church. The truth of God has been eroded. Eroded. Most people gauge the value of truth by relevance. People don't ask so much are things true today? They ask what it means to me. I want to suggest to you today that the value of truth is based upon the fact that it is true. The value is based upon the fact that it is true. The gauge of the value of truth is truthfulness. We value truth because it is more necessary than the very food that we eat. This mentality regarding truth, a devaluing of the truth, has slipped into the church. But I want to remind you that the truth of God is absolute. The truth of God is unchanging. The truth of God and His Word is really the only commodity that the church has to offer of any value to the world we live in. So if we lose the truth of God then we have no reason for our existence in this world. It's the only valuable commodity that we have to give to this world. So Paul's point is not that the church produces truth. When you hear pillar and ground, depending on what translation you have, pillar and buttress, it's not suggesting that it originated in the church. The truth did not give birth, the church did not give birth to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel gave birth to the church. That's the order you see it. Don't you realize that you sit here today based upon the benefits of the truth of the gospel giving birth to the church. If that would not have taken place, the gospel never would have come west. And we never would have heard the gospel had it not been for the truth of the gospel giving birth to the church. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and you're sitting in the uttermost parts of the world. I hope you realize that. The gospel is going to come to us, and it did. So, what Paul is saying is that the church holds up the truth. Just think about Paul saying this in Ephesus, and you had the Temple of Diana, and you had these gigantic pillars that held up the roof system, which is the most important thing that you see. You see the roof in all of its beauty and And how gorgeous it is. But something is holding that up. And so you need to think about the church as someone who puts the truth on display. We don't cover it up. We don't hide it. We don't make it palatable for us to digest. We hold the truth high. It is the very pillar of the truth. We hold the truth high. We put it on display because it is the most important thing we have. You know, one of the reasons Christ came to earth, if we went down through the statements, Jesus Christ came for this, came for this. One particular point, it says in the Gospel of John, the Son of Man has come to bear witness to the truth. And you shall know the truth and it shall set you free. So just as the pillars in an ancient Roman building would hold high the roof for all to see, we as the church of the living God must hold high the... The truth of God's word for the world to hear and see. Secondly, the word buttress emphasizes that not only does the church hold the truth high, but we are called by God to defend the truth. We're called by God to stand on it and defend it. Jude, verse 3 reminds us that we are called to contend for the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are called as a church to hold truth high. We are called as a church to preserve the truth. We are called as a church to defend the truth. So when you walk into this building, and others in this community walk into this building, there ought to be a marked difference in our view of truth from those who walk into the JW Kingdom Hall down the road. There ought to be a marked difference in what we view because this is our only source of truth for life and practice. No other. Y'all get that, right? We believe that this book is the word of God. It is so much the word of God as if God were to manifest himself bodily in this building today and began to speak to you. This is the holy word of God. So this is the truth that we hold high. This is the truth that we defend. That is first the conduct and behavior of the church. Now second, I want you to see that there is a confession that should govern the life of of the church and don't you love this confession this is not an exhaustive list of the truth that we defend is it but what I'm trying to get you to see is that the writer gave this to us so that we would understand the supremacy of Jesus Christ and how he affects the church not just that he was born in Bethlehem and we grab onto the sentimentality of it but you see the rest of the story How is it that the Son of God affects the church? As a matter of fact, there would be no church apart from the Son of God. Right? Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ever ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Through all ages, world without end. Amen. So it is Christ that is the head of the church. And here's this incredible confession we live in a day when people strive for ecumenical unity. You know what the theme of our day is? Why can't we just get along? Right? Many people quickly dispense the truth for the sake of getting along. I would suggest to you today that all unity is based on truth. Let that sink in. All true unity is based upon truth. There is no genuine unity without truth. So the Bible says, great indeed, we confess. Something that we hold together, we confess it, is the mystery of godliness. Godliness means a relationship with God, basically. And there is this mystery of godliness that establishes This particular relationship with God. And that relationship can only be established through God the Son. And so the text is going to unfold to us this mystery of godliness. Now when you encounter the word mystery like David was speaking of earlier, we're not talking about something that is hidden that you have to seek to try to find out what it is. And you'll seek in vain. That's not what we're meaning here. The word mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden for a time, but now it has been revealed. The mystery. Also add to that, that this mystery cannot be figured out or found by human effort or wisdom. This this particular mystery must be given to you by divine wisdom. Remember Peter? Who do you say that I am? Peter says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you, but only my Father who is in heaven. So this mystery of godliness folks, has everything to do with Christ. Merry Christmas. It has everything to do with Christ. So to have a godliness is to have a Christ-centeredness that permeates everything about you and your life. It touches on every part of you, your obedience, your reverence to God. And we stand today to say that there is historical objective realities that we call truth. And this historical reality is the center of our faith. And our faith is rooted in the historical, objective reality of Jesus Christ, who lived and died on a cruel Roman cross, but the grave could not hold him. He came forth from the grave. Our faith is rooted in the objective reality of an empty tomb. That's our faith. These things are of historical objective reality. And if these things are not true in history, then we're the biggest fools that have ever lived. Y'all get that, don't you? As a matter of fact, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ be not risen, then our faith is empty and we are still in our sins. In other words, we're the biggest fools that ever lived if the historical reality of Christ and who He is and His person is not true. So the facts are not just to fill your heads, however. The facts are important. You can't be saved without knowing the facts of the gospel. True. But as followers of Christ, the truth comes to us in such a way that it transforms us. It's not just an objective reality out there of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But when you become a Christian, your life is transformed. Back up. Your behavior is transformed. Your thoughts of church life... The decisions you make, you are transformed by Christ. The truth of God gets in us. And it becomes the most important thing in our lives. In other words, these are not just facts that you store in a file. These are the truths and principles and realities that control your very life. Boy, we need to take the magnifying glass of the word of God and turn it onto our faces and hearts, don't we? Does the truth of Christ and his supremacy control my entire life? If you're a believer, on the authority of the Bible, it should. It should. Jesus Christ should control your life. The mystery comes to us and produces godliness. It produces wisdom. It produces reverence. And most importantly, it produces obedience. We're not talking about dead orthodoxy. You ever heard what that, y'all know what that is? Well, you can be theologically as straight as a gun barrel, but you can be just as empty on the inside. In other words, you can believe right, but has the truth of God's word affected your life? Well, Paul knew nothing of dead orthodoxy. To be just lifeless, yet thinking we believe the right thing, Paul knew nothing of this. The only truth that Paul knew was the kind when God would quicken the dead soul and make him alive in Christ. And then when you're made alive, you have affection and love for Jesus Christ and a desire to follow him even unto death. That's what the gospel does. Christian truth produces godliness. Paul's going to sum up this wonderful confession. By the way, the confession reads like a hymn. Many scholars believe that it was a, it was a creed. In the early church, it almost has rhythm to it very quickly. The Son of God was manifested in the flesh. Y'all know what that means? The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us. We're talking about what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, we hope what you celebrate at Christmas is the fact that God was manifested in the flesh. We hope and pray that that's what you're celebrating, but this in essence is called the truth of the Incarnation God Himself became flesh. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we are talking about here is the deity of Christ. In other words, the Son of God is co-equal with, coexistence with, co-essential with the Father. But God became a man and dwelt among us. Jesus was not merely a miracle worker or a good teacher. He was God in human flesh. The Missouri paper for the Baptist is called The Pathway. And in December there was an article called Truly God, Truly Man. And it revealed that 65% of American evangelicals were thoroughly confused about what the incarnation is. They all agreed, uh, they had 65% of American evangelicals believe in this statement. That Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Folks, we're in trouble. 65% of American evangelicals who say they believe the Bible agreed with the statement that Jesus Christ was the first and greatest created being. Folks, I'm telling you, that's really, really, really bad. If Jesus Christ was not fully God, then we have no chance of heaven. We have no salvation And you have no Christianity. Jesus is not the first and greatest created being. The Son of God existed for all eternity, equal with the Father. So here we are in our day. The incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the eternal Godhead, becoming a man, is a non-negotiable in the life of this church. He is God. And that's what we believe. We affirm with all our guts, is that a good southern word? That Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. If he was not God, then the death, his death on the cross was in vain, and we're still in our sins. Looking at the text, he was manifested in the flesh very quickly. He was vindicated by the Spirit. How were all of Christ's truth claims as the Messiah vindicated? Remember what he came saying. I'm the Son of God. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. He came doing miracles. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He gave blind eyes vision. He caused deaf people to hear. When were all of those truth claims vindicated? When he was resurrected from the grave. He was vindicated by the Spirit of God. In other words, folks, all of Christ's claims were placed in the tomb when he was placed in the tomb. All of Christianity was placed upon, future Christianity, knowing Christ, was based upon... An empty, a tomb that he was placed in. So in other words, Christianity was laid in the tomb with him. But boy, was it ever resurrected with him as well. So the Spirit of God vindicated him. Romans 1.4 says, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He became a man, died on a cruel cross, and was resurrected from the dead. And all of his truth claims... In other words, the skeptics could say he was a liar. But on the third day, Jesus was raised bodily, vindicated by the Spirit, proving that he was, in fact, God in human flesh. So just as the incarnation, God becoming a man, is a non-negotiable, so is the resurrection. Uh, if, If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. Number three, the Son of God was seen by angels. Very quickly, that simply means that he was savored by the angels. Angels sang at his birth. They announced his resurrection and they witnessed his ascension. He's the Son of God. Number four, the Son of God was proclaimed among the nations. How did the testimony of the church regarding a resurrected Lord go to the ends of the earth? It was because the Son of God was preached among the nations. Did Jesus not say this in Luke? Preach the gospel. Take it to the ends of the earth. Remember, Jesus could say this. All authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all things, whatever I have commanded you to teach. And I am with you all the way to the end. So when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went out and they proclaimed the everlasting gospel of God. Folks, that's what this church is supposed to continue to do. Number 5. The son of God was believed on in the world. He is the savior of the world. The scripture says, the scriptures tell us that he was believed on. The Bible says, Jeffrey quoted it, in this manner God loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I want to remind you that God today is saving people. We saw a video of the Amazon jungle. God is bringing in his sheep. God is able to get the gospel to every corner of the world. And when it says world here, it doesn't mean universal, meaning that everybody in the world is going to be saved. What it means is that God is going to save people of every ethnic group in the world. Doesn't matter what social standing you have, right? Doesn't matter. What color, what social standing, the gospel makes the difference. Jesus can save souls. Think about this. It could not be squelched by oppression or persecution. The gospel triumphed and it will triumph. Right? The gospel triumphed in the past and it will triumph in the future. Church, don't stop being what we ought to be even though it doesn't look good for the United States of America. It doesn't. I don't care who the ruler is or who the king or the president is. That doesn't really matter to me. What does matter is how Christians live in this world. What really matters is how this church, FBCO, this body of believers functions in this world. Because we can only do what we're called to do as the people of God. And that is live the gospel. Right? And here's the deal. It's only the gospel that can change the world. And finally, look at this. The Son of God is the king of the universe. He was taken up to glory. This is his ascension and exaltation. Churches don't talk about this much today. The scripture says he was taken up to glory. I want to remind you that we are not waiting for him to become king. He's already king. He reigns now. He is in glory. We're not waiting for him to become king. He is the king. He is on his throne. As the Bible says, waiting until his enemies become his footstool. The one whose head was wreathed with a crown of thorns is now wearing the diadem of sovereignty and glory and dominion. He's coming again, right? He's coming again in all of his power and glory. Let's make this individual for a moment. If he's king, then every day in a practical way, I and you prove that without his total reign in our lives, we're just absolutely ruined. I don't feel like I can make it 15 seconds without his reign in my life. When you know the gospel and it has transformed your life, that's the way you lived. Lord Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't live. We can't think. We can't function. Folks, he's either Christ the king and Lord and reigns or he isn't. He's the king and he reigns. This is the complete Christmas Manifested in the, this is the rest of the story. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed in the world, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. These are the truths that you want to build your life on. These are the truths that can transform a dead sinner and make him a living, him a living saint. These are the truths that can bring life to the most stubborn sinner you know. These are the truths that can topple communism. The gospel. These are the truths that can change empires and transform kings and paupers. It's the gospel of the living God. I sure pray that of every step of the way in this text, you've stopped to praise God for you being a part of the household of God. For you being saved and a believer. This text brings together the supremacy of Christ over all things and the conduct of of the church. May we be the church that we're called to be by our God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful text manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. Lord, what a blessing it is to read the text. Paul had a concern in his day, some 2,000 years ago, 1,950 years ago, Paul had a concern in the church of Ephesus of what could happen and what was taking place. God, how much more today do we need to take inventory of where we are as a church and what we're supposed to be in this world? Lord, help us to be your church in the world. Father, for those that may be among us that are lost, there's no middle ground. We're either saved and on our way to heaven or lost. And on our way to hell. Only the gospel can save sinners. Lord Jesus, would you touch a heart today. And bring them, draw them to you. Through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. We ask you without reservation to come to Jesus. Right? If you know and you've heard the gospel. That's the truth, the facts of the gospel. But a Savior of facts only that you acknowledge in your mind, that you don't trust totally in, is not going to be your Savior. You've got to believe in Him. You've got to trust Him by faith as your Lord and Savior. Let's sing together. Shall we stand? And behold the
2: wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance! How unwavering our hope. Christ in power.
4: Amen. I trust that in the coming week, you'll get a chance to rest a little bit. Some of you probably have to go right back to work, but I know our teachers and students, we pray you'll be safe and and have a a good time off. And Let's also pray that God Almighty will put an end to this virus, amen, Amen. so we can get back to functioning. Don't you long for the day when we can come back as an entire church in one service, Amen. amen. Let's pray that God will do that soon. God bless each one of you.
0: Uh, A big thank you to everybody who bought a poinsettia in honor or or in memory of uh, a loved one. And if you did, and you want to take one of these home, go ahead and do that. Okay? So they just grab one of these on your on your way out. God bless you. Merry Christmas. (laughs)